Hi everyone, this is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of DC Power Hour. We've got a, a great trio of guests. We've got our battery blarney duo of Alan and George and their longtime friend and colleague at times, I believe, Dan Lambert, somebody else who, who's sort of rubbed shoulders with them in the industry for, for many years. And uh, we're going to talk about a really interesting topic that that these gentlemen definitely have their their finger on the pulse of the industry and can can shed some light on some of these sto- codes and standards and maybe we'll talk a little bit about backcon coming up next week so alan why don't you get us started here today okay well good morning everybody or good afternoon wherever you are you know we used to say that on these podcasts we used to wing things you know we wouldn't, wouldn't do a lot of research you know that took up too much time so this one, we're really winging it because both George and I found out about an hour ago that we actually had a podcast today. So, but we're going to talk about very interesting subject. We're going to talk about emerging codes and standards, and we'll bring a little bit of, of you know, emerging battery technologies into that. And we're also going to talk a little bit about BATCON. So I'm going to hand it over to my co-host here, George. So what have you got to say today, George? What have I got to say? Well, to start talking off about just this whole idea of codes and standards, the the fact is that at the last IEEE meeting down in Savannah, there's a whole session on codes and standards, and even I got a little bit surprised at just how many things are coming into play. People are coming up with or the IEEE themselves plus the UL have got involved. And there are a number of standards now coming up, which more or less require the batteries to have been tested to UL in order to be sold in some markets. Dan, I think, is probably more up to date with that than I am. I tend to focus on the the monitoring side of it more than on the, the actual standards for the batteries themselves. But I think the other the other point about it is, is that there's also, within some of the the, the external standards like the the fire code things like that they are looking at putting restrictions on new technology simply because they don't understand it so let me pass it back to dan for a little bit and just see what his viewpoint on those ideas are well but before we bring dan in i'd, I'd like to introduce him as a, he's been a guest on the program before but i'd like to introduce him george and i have known dan for i would say 30, 35 years, Dan, our paths have crossed several times. And the thing I admire about Dan, because not only is he an expert on a lot of the subject matter, but Dan's also a licensed electrician. And, you know, being a licensed electrician, they're the salt of the earth. And I wish I had taken my licensing because it makes it a hell of a lot easier to talk to electrical inspectors and things like that. So anyway, I'll hand it over to Dan. Thank you. I always get kind of a chuckle out of somebody calling me an expert because I once heard the description of an expert as has been drip under pressure. And I I, I hope I'm not that. But yeah, I do, do have a little bit of experience in the electrical field. I've been, been an electrician for over 40 years now. And What George was saying earlier about the IEEE meeting and the codes and standards, I got to thinking about this after our last meeting. And and literally, if you look at how rapidly the changes have been occurring in codes and standards, it seems to me like I've seen more change in the last three years or four years than I have in the preceding 20 years not only with the National Electrical Code, NFPA 70, but also with the fire codes and UL and the IEEE standards. We've got so many changes going on. It's sometimes really hard to keep up with. You you think just about UL alone, they've had revisions in the last six months of 
UL 94, UL 1778, UL 1973, 9540 has been revised, and the 9548A test procedure has been revised. And that's, that's just talking about things that are strictly battery related. So you, you combine that with some of the other things that have been going on. We've got now a new revision of NFPA 855, which it seems like there are only seven or eight states that really follow NFPA directly, but 855 has had an impact all the way across the industry. And the International Code Council, with their International Fire Code, has incorporated most of the language that's in 855 into the 2021 International Fire Code. And there's more changes coming for the 2024 edition. I was fortunate to sit on the Fire Code Advisory Council for energy storage for the 2024 edition. And there are significant changes even in the language between the 2021 code and the 2024 code. The thing that most people don't really think about is that until the 2018 International Fire Code and National Fire Code from ICC and NFPA respectfully, there really wasn't much language in any of the codes regarding energy storage, batteries, that sort of thing. You, you could just basically install whatever you wanted to, and aside from some language in the National Electrical Code that regulated it, there really wasn't much in any of the codes regarding the energy storage of battery systems. So now there's, there's huge changes in that area. And then yet you get into the alternate energy systems. That that's that's a whole other sea change. Well, I don't think we'll be able to cover much of it, some of in this session. But Dan, you what you said reminds me of a old expression. I I can't claim that I originated it, but it's the nice thing about codes is that there's so many to choose from. So, Absolutely. Absolutely, and, uh, and, and sometimes that sometimes that gets us in trouble. So, just a, my advice to anybody working with authority having jurisdiction, whether it's an electrical inspector, fire inspector, building inspector, whatever, is you know just go with the flow and say yes, sir, enough times, and you'll get by. But they really, in my opinion, need to be educated as well. And Dan, you mentioned the fire inspectors having a problem with some of the emerging technologies because they don't understand it. Well, you know, they're not going to understand it until somebody from the industry, you know, meets with them, explains things and everything else. You know, they seem to be isolated at the moment. So, George, I know you've been to the last couple of IEEE meetings and participated in some codes. So like to tell us about that, George? Well, the, 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 don't you say I have sat in on the meetings and listened to him, and as Dan said, we seem to have gained a lot more codes. He's better off than I am. He can recite all the numbers, at least. But I, I know, from my own personal point of view, the, the, the one I have had most association with in the last couple of months is the NFP 855. And I have to say, having having worked through that, trying to understand a question from a potential customer, it's not easy to understand in any way, shape or form, because they seem to be trying to cover absolutely everything with it. And unless you have a lot of knowledge about all different aspects of it, it's very difficult to interpret it correctly. And that was the problem that this particular customer had, was they were... They were trying to interpret it, and it was it, it wasn't they, they were they were going off on a tangent. In fact, the, earlier on, it had said that this did not apply to that particular battery type, but it was easy to miss. You had to read it about five times before you actually caught that little bit that said this was not going to affect something else. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have with all of these standards now is is having people understand them. And in some of the ones, some of the UL ones, when it comes to effectively certifying batteries, how to explain that that battery you were able to buy and ship to a customer a year ago, now 
isn't got their correct certification, so you can't because the manufacturer hasn't done the paperwork yet. Things like that. It's it's you know it it's that sort of thing that is really going to make life difficult for us. Well, before we even start talking about looking at the alternate you know battery types. George, you're reminding me of something here, and you're perfectly right, is that, you know, the codes are hard to understand. Some of the codes are hard to understand. Oh, but, you know, NFPA and is probably notorious for, you know, putting language in there that's hard to interpret. And that reminds me of a friend of mine who sadly no longer with us, a guy by the name of Joe McPartland, he came out with a guide to the National Electric Code. I'm sure Dan will remember that. And you didn't just have the code, but you had the guide as well. And that was great. And I think maybe that's something we should be looking at from an IEEE point of view. So having a guide for electrical inspectors or authorities having jurisdiction. But Dan... You mentioned 855, which seems to be the talking point at the moment. Would you like to go into that a little bit deeper? Sure. 855, as George said, they're trying to encompass everything within it. In the original version, the 2021 or 2020 version of 855, that was primarily focused on electrochemical. In other words, storage batteries of one type or another. The new version, the 2023 version, covers alternate technologies as well. Everything from fuel cells and and flywheels to other technologies. But 855, in in essence, realistically, is basically focused on batteries and the safety of battery systems. So, and it's looked at from a fire code perspective because originally NFPA, as the title says, it's the National Fire Protection Association. So it's it's really fire control, fire code centric in the real world. And all of the other codes and standards that they write are basically formulated and conceived around the aspect of fire control. Now 855 in its original configuration did call out for virtually everything except for lithium, excuse me, except for lead acid and nickel cadmium. It required some form of of higher testing. The original battery test was realistically for motive batteries, more, more for light railway type applications. That's 1973. And now since since the 1998, no, excuse me, 2018 version of the fire code, and they started seeing some issues with alternate chemistries. UL has created the UL 9540. That's actually a standard for energy storage systems, and that's the entire package from primarily for grid tied applications, everything from the rectifier through the battery system to the inverter to feed back into the grid and all of the control implementation required to accomplish that. So it's a systemic standard. But then they test, they created a test standard specifically for battery technologies. And initially, as I said, the lead acid and the NICAD batteries were exempted from that. But virtually everything else had to go through the UL9540A test method. That includes all of the nickel batteries, the nickel zinc, nickel iron, honestly, could be conceived to be covered by that because it's not specifically excluded in in the in 855. And then you have the lithium, sodium batteries, other things like that, that now have to go through 855 or excuse me, 9548. And the, the crux of it is, is that what they do is they take a battery and they subject it to a, a variety of test methods, overcharge, over discharge, overheating it, short circuit, a nail penetration test where that's something that's conceivable. And 
all of these tests are designed to see what it takes to set that battery on fire if in fact it will will burn they're aiming to determine whether or not it has a propensity to go into thermal runaway and that's actually part of the title of the the thing is a propensity for thermal runaway all of these tests are designed so that if at a cell level the battery is able to basically meet the requirements of 9540A. And I don't have time to fully explain 9540A just because, it's, as Alan said, it's a complex standard. But if you're not able to meet that test with an acceptable outcome at the cell level, then you pro progress to a module level where you're allowed some enclosure and some other aids to restrict the fire potential. If you can't reach an acceptable result after the module level, then you can go to a unit level, which would allow you to incorporate more fire protection, more fire prevention type system, battery management systems and other things like that. And then if you're still not able to accept a, achieve an acceptable result, then you go into the installation level which literally could mean everything from sprinkler systems and explosion deflagration venting and all sorts of things like that to help prevent a, a fire or a potential explosion in the system from creating real damage to, to the facility. 9540A was originally considered to be basically a real burden to the industry. And it has been just because it costs so much to go through the testing procedure at each level. But in the end, it's given us pretty good idea of what happens with certain battery types in certain circumstances. And there are spacing limitations based on the, the 9548 result. If, if you have a propensity for thermal runaway, you're required to keep a three-foot clearance on all sides of each individual battery string. Their maximum individual string capacity limits of 50 kilowatt hours. There's a maximum capacity allowed to be contained in one fire control area, in other words, battery room with certain chemistries. Others were exempted from that. So there are a lot of restrictions within 855 that can potentially significantly increase the cost of a battery room a UPS facility, the data center, just because of the fire control requirements. And that doesn't even get into the expense of the deflagration venting and having to put separate battery rooms for smaller quantities of some batteries. So there, there's a lot of potential investment requirement if you choose certain battery types within 855. But Dan, you've, you've thrown a lot of numbers out there and I, th I think I'm familiar with most of them, but just a plug for BATCON here is a whole session and over three different speakers on codes and standards. And yes. what you've mentioned in the in your, your, your talk there is that most of those will be covered. And it's, it's amazing what I didn't know about them when I was privy to read some of the papers. But the other thing is, you know, when we had led us at Nickel Cadman, Cadman, we were cruising. You know, we marched to our own drum, basically, because, uh, mm -hmm. you know, there were tried and true uh, chemistries. And then, then come along, you know, with the, through a wrench in the works. And not only that, back in the day, we had, you and I were both members of the IEEE. It was the IEEE. Power Engineering Society, SCC 29, uh, which dealt purely with lead acid, nickel cadmium. And then come along these energy storage folks, and that really threw a wrench in the works. And dare I mention battery fires and all sorts of things going wrong. So that, that changed the perspective completely, I think. You know, I'm a lead head and always will be. You mentioned nickel iron batteries. I, I had somebody call me Friday. George would remember the name, but I'll tell him later. Who wanted asking me about nickel iron batteries? Well, quite frankly, I said I don't know a lot about them, but I steered them in the right direction. But I was, I tried to find out 
you know, the big manufacturers, they're not many. There are not many. So, but anyway, I put it over to George again. And George, you know, I know you're going to be talking at BatCon, but not on the code subject. But let's hear what you have to say about some of the emerging standards, or sorry, the emerging technologies as well. Well, the emerging technologies are, are, are fascinating. I've, I've got one thing to comment that Dan didn't mention is that part of the one of the, the fire codes is a requirement of where the batteries can actually be located within a building. And it basically, when you when you read it, it says that they effectively can't be above the third floor of any building because that's as far as the fire truck ladder will get to. And they have to, they can't be, they've got to be down at the level where they access to the basement. Well, the, the trouble is that, as you well know, Mr. Byrne, you dispatched me forthwith to look after New York for you when you, I first came to the States full time. So I'm very familiar with battery systems in large buildings. And I'll tell you now, none of the ones I ever worked on that were in the basement were at a level that was easy accessible. That was one of the biggest hassles with them because the strongest floor is the one on the bottom. So if you've got six levels of basement, guess where the battery is? And when you try to put them upstairs, there was quite a few times I had to get the engineers in to cut holes in walls and put I-beams across to set the batteries on just to achieve the necessary floor loading, as you well know. So, you know, this idea that they could do it, I just don't see that happening. You know, because you, you you can't you're not gonna be able to sell a UPS with a lithium battery in it if you can't put it multiple floors up on a on a on a tower block. You know, I do realize that they also have a concern because we all know just how many lead acid batteries there were in the twin towers when they collapsed, and that's why there is a lot of the health problems and the deaths that have occurred with the people that worked on the cleanup, you know. I used to do, you know, as you'll remember, you you had me doing maintenance in a number of levels of that Twin Tower while I was based up in New York. So, yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge. They want more and more batteries and less and less places to put them. You know, and Dan made the very good point, is this whole, the cost of doing all this type of fire-related and, you know, risk-taking type testing. It's it's very very expensive because it is it's dangerous in its own way, you know. Things can go wrong during the testing, so they've got to be you know it's got to be tested behind safety barriers and all all the rest of it, and that all adds to the cost. But that that's which brings us to the subject you just mentioned is, what about some of the newer technologies? Are any of them actually any safer than lithium? Now. I know that we're we're spending phenomenal sums all around the world to build lithium plants and all the rest of it. But as you and I have said on a number of occasions on these these DC power hours, is is that really the best solution? Should we be looking at the newer technologies? Should we be spending more time at them? Is this an opportunity to find something that's a lot safer? And maybe with materials that are more easily available. It's just a thought. But I, I have to know a little bit about that because Dan, in fact, co-opted me on to one of his committees <laughs> in the IEEE <laughs> to talk about basically what we're looking at there are alkaline-based batteries, which cover nickel, zinc, nickel, all, all the nickel-based batteries and the, the zinc-based batteries as well. So it's, it's, it's interesting because... It, the materials for most of them are not only more readily available, but they're actually easier to recycle. You know, most of those, there's, like nickel in that can be recycled easily out of the battery, for a perfect example of it. But it's, the, the problem we have is trying to get people to, A, understand what the technology is, because we, unfortunately, a lot of the people that are now We've lost a lot of expertise in the industry, so it's very difficult for them to understand anything beyond lead acid. Some of them don't even understand lead acid, but to be honest. But I think it's this is how do we educate people on it? As you say, especially the authorities having jurisdiction, 
because they're the ones that we're going to have to convince. So as Dan is heavily involved in nickel-based batteries at the present moment, I'd like to hear his comments on what I've just said. Well, you make a good point. These newer technologies, and particularly the nickel and the zinc-based batteries, much, much more readily recyclable. The materials are significantly easier to find and significantly more abundant than lithium or lead for that matter. So the just from an economic side, compared to a lead battery, okay, you buy one of the nickel batteries, one of the zinc batteries, you're probably going to pay more initially for the battery, but you're looking at significantly longer life cycle. So the overall cost of the battery over the period of, that you're using a UPS system is either going to be a wash or slightly in, in favor of one of the other technologies rather than letter or something like that. The nickel cadmium, we basically don't see a lot anymore except for very specialized circumstances. And that's primarily due to the cadmium element and it's, uh, it's toxic heavy metal. You mentioned the nickel zinc and that, yes, I, I work for a nickel zinc manufacturer and my primary job focus now is uh, codes and standards related to energy storage. So I'm familiar with the nickel batteries. I'm familiar with some of the other technologies, zinc, manganese, dioxide, rechargeables, the sodium battery, sodium ion, and also the the, the high temperature sodium batteries. There, there are a couple of different formulations of those. These batteries in general are going to be a lot safer than, than some of the lithium technologies. And it's just simply because they don't have any, most of them don't have any volatile organic compounds in the batteries themselves. You don't have the lithium salt or anything like that, which is highly flammable, particularly in some of the chemical combinations that they're using. And the, the nickel batteries and the, the zinc batteries tend to be significantly less prone to damage in the first place. They're, they're not as fragile as most people perceive a lithium battery to be in it. In fact, I think the lithium batteries are relatively fragile comparatively. But like the nickel iron we were talking about now, under 855, with some of the amendments that have been given to the original and the new, you can have the nickel iron, nickel metal hydride, the nickel zinc, and nickel cadmium all fall basically into the same category. And those have an unlimited capacity per battery room, the fire containment area. Your zinc manganese dioxide, again, those are very common elements. They're easy to, to come by, reasonably inexpensive. The reality of it comes down to choosing the battery that's correct for the application. You have power batteries, which tend to be the, the nickel-zinc batteries, and energy batteries, which tend to be the nickel-metal hydride. This kind of a crossover with metal hydride that can go either way. But the energy batteries, more specifically the zinc-manganese dioxide and some of those are, are very good energy batteries. So choosing the right battery for the application is huge. None of these batteries, though, are flammable. And it is just to go through the UL9540A testing with the nickel zinc battery. And in no circumstance were they able to make the battery go into a thermal runaway. Yeah, you, you have all sorts of damage to the battery, needless to say, because it's abusive testing. The, the whole plan is to destroy the battery. So they, they are able to successfully destroy the battery, but there's nothing flammable inside it, so it won't burn. Even the case is at least a UL94V1, which is non-flammable. You, you remove a flame from it and it self-extinguishes. So they're not even the case will burn unless it's supported by an external fire. The, the zinc manganese dioxide, zinc and manganese are not going to go into a thermal runaway. They've been tested and proven to be very, very safe. The sodium batteries, particularly the high temperature sodium batteries, they're about as inherently safe as you can get. They're already operating at 300 degrees C, roughly. 
and you, you drive a, a metal spike through the side of one of them, you short it out internally, it disconnects and cools off, but it's not going to burn. If it was at 300 degrees C, it'd already be burning. So that's an inherently safe battery as far as the thermal runaway issues are concerned. So you're seeing a lot of batteries, and there, there are a lot we haven't talked about. Zinc air, sodium ion, there are all sorts of different technologies that are coming online, and some of them have yet still to be proven, but the, most of them have already been through the testing procedures and been proven to be a non-flammable battery. So they are very well presented in 855, and even if they aren't like in the International Fire Code, the 2021 version of the International Fire Code, nickel zinc, nickel metal hydride, the zinc manganese dioxide batteries, these are not specifically called out in the IFC 2021, but IFC 2021 and likewise the NFPA1 National Fire Code, both of them have an exclusion where if you have a, an alternate technology than what's already provided in the code, you can create what's called a hazard mitigation analysis and provide all of the data, the installation procedures, the owners and operators manual, and all of the various technical data regarding the, the battery technology you want to use, along with the UL9540A report, you can submit this to the AHJ. And generally, based on that 9540A report, he will either give you permission or deny you based on how flammable the battery is. So there's a lot of, a lot of leeway right now. And the 2024 edition of the International Fire Code will even go further and provide specific recommendations on these other technologies I've mentioned. Okay. The, the one, uh, one thing, Dan, that I, I know you said that the sodium battery is running at 300 degrees C is is safe because if you puncture it, it will go down. Unfortunately, I've got, I've got lots of unhappy memories of a certain Canadian lithium battery that ran at a high temperature and burned a lot of things down. Yeah, but that's lithium, not sodium. Yes, I know. Uh, but it's anyway, just, just anyway. the idea of running it at a high temperature so bothers me slightly, but never mind. Uh, right. uh, anyway, they, you know, let me have a my short rant about lithium, just to annoy some of my, it will annoy some of my colleagues, but then I guess they probably don't listen to this podcast anyway. But, uh, you know, lithium, if it wasn't for electric vehicles, it wasn't for money thrown at it by governments, if it wasn't for people investing in the technology when they didn't really know what they were investing in, I don't think lithium, I don't think lithium Will be around much longer, quite honestly. There's too much of a risk. And also, you know, they can't keep shoving everything under the carpet at the moment. So, you know, jurisdictions like New York City, for instance, London, I believe, and other large metropolitan areas are banning electric scooters. Not necessarily banning them, but, you know, they're saying you cannot bring them inside a building. Well, if, I have an electric, if I'm living in New York and have an electric scooter, my options are to leave it outside and everything will be taken care of because it won't be there the following morning. So it becomes somebody else's problem. But that leads me into something else maybe we can talk about. Liability. Okay. Where has the insurance companies, particularly Factory Mutual and some of those big insurers of data centers and, and the like. Where are they on this? I haven't I haven't had too much. Several years ago, I, they, they used to communicate with me on some battery questions, but then we're just talking about lead acid. But, you know, I would think some of the major insurance companies have real problems. Now, are they covering? Dan, you might know, are they covering, say, for instance, a lithium-ion battery in a data center? That's on the fourth floor of a, of a. Well, let, let, let's go with co emerging coach on the third floor of a building in the middle of New York City. Can I you, doubt you, very seriously that most of them would touch that. Number one, as you mentioned, 
New York City, you literally almost can't get a, a lithium battery approved in, in New York City now. Likewise, in, in L.A., several of the, the West Coast jurisdictions won't allow lithium in their, in their buildings there. And it's based on past experience, not only local experience, but on national and international experience. We've been engaged with a couple of the, the insurance companies. At one time, Factory Mutual was basically just, if you, if you wanted to install a lithium battery, they'd go ahead and cover it. It is my understanding, what I've seen recently, that now Factory Mutual is very, very, very resistant to covering lithium batteries. There are certain cases they will allow them in, but most of the time, I don't think they really want to cover lithium batteries. They hunt any excuse not to. Some of these other technologies, I know there's some testing going on with Factory Mutual and a couple of the other major insurance companies to test some of these alternate technologies. And I don't have a feedback right now on what they're, they're seeing. But based on their reading of the 9548 reports from the various manufacturers, they seem to be pretty, pretty easily convinced to use those batteries pending their own testing. Yeah, they, uh, there's something else that's, you know, code-wise that's been interesting over the past probably 10 years, and that's ArcFlash, NFPA 70E. It's... DC arc flash in particular, you know, we can all understand AC arc flash and we can understand and and go along with the rules and regulations, you know, surrounding that arc flash probability or, or, or incidents, should I say. But yeah. with DC systems, that's completely different. And the original NFPA 70E treated DC basically the same as it did AC. Except they said to put a DC voltage limit of 50 volts. And then that went up to 100 volts, then back down to 50 volts. And that annoyed a lot of the battery installers. But not only that, the UP, you know, the telecom people who, you know, they're working with 24 and 48 volts, where arc flash is virtually impossible. But I've noticed in the upcoming version of NFPA 70E, I believe that's going up to 150 volts, which will greatly right. assist the utility companies who operate 120, 130 volts, and also the UPS companies, because if they're operating on a, say, a 240-volt bus, which is quite common, all they have to do is put the means of divide, you know, cutting that bus in half, disconnect, and then literally people can safely work on them without putting on a, a spacesuit and having, you know, testing the batteries or even making the connections. So uh, I look forward to that being a reality. But th that's a case of some people doing a lot of research and coming up with some sense. You know, the National Electric Code, love it or hate it, you know, it's a, it's a necessity. But for the battery section... It's first, I won't say it's useless, but you know, you need to know a lot more than NFPA 70 to go along. So, is there anything else on the horizon, code wise, like NFPA 70E becoming more realistic? And I know there have been some developments, NFPA 70. Don, I don't know if you've been involved with any of that. I have not been involved with either 70 or 70E directly. We have a friend who has been involved. Some of the members, in fact, of, of the, the Energy Storage and Stationary Battery Committee, they have a task group for codes and standards, and George alluded to that earlier. And a couple of the members of that task group have been working on NFPA 70, and I believe one of them has been working on 70E. but. You mentioned earlier about BATCON and, and the codes presentation. There's one in there in in this session at BATCON next week that's on 70E. It's given by Lloyd Gordon, 
who is instrumental in the electrical safety workshop for IEEE. I attended that session in Reno last month. I believe it was last month. It was either end of February or, or excuse me, end of March or 1st of April. But at any rate, there has been significant work done on bringing some sanity to 70E with regard to DC art flash. There are some very, very good case studies that have been produced and, and presented to the 70E committee, as well as a lot of realistically just, just basic testing done by various entities and, and provided that show that the art flash potential, particularly when you're dealing with what's most people would not consider it so, but in reality, a battery is a relatively current limited device. It has an enormous amount of short circuit current, but it dissipates pretty quickly, particularly through an arc. So it's shown that they, there is there is the potential for a sustained as much as two second long arc flash occurrence with some DC voltages, but you're talking about very, very high voltages and very short clearances with with hardened materials such as tungsten electrodes for the test rather than what would be typically found in a battery string, which would be copper or, or lead electrodes. Yeah. Well, thanks for that comment. George, you're going to be talking on a panel, I believe, at BATCON. What's the subject matter of that panel? Is it relevant to this podcast? It's not exactly relevant to this podcast, but it's going to be about basically the battery maintenance. It's, it's, it's about all the different ways to talk about battery maintenance. By the, some of the people that are on the committee with or the panel with me, I think there'll be a, a discussion between monitoring and manual maintenance that there'll be a, a great deal of focus on that. So it's going to be an interesting session. But I'd like to come back to something to talk to Dan a little bit about with respect to the new technologies. One of, one of the, the things about lithium that has always bothered me is that you might do all these testings on a lithium cell, but there's no regulations or no rules about the control and monitoring of a lithium battery system. There's not a standard for that. So... And I suppose I'm, I'm being very cynical here, but my viewpoint is that the, the lithium cells themselves will typically cost every just about the same amount of money, unless you're making them. And if that's the case, then the only place that companies can reduce cost is to take it out of the monitoring system or the management system. So and we know that monitoring and management within a lithium battery is, is critical from a safety point of view, to, to make sure that it doesn't either over overcharge or over-discharge and to identify potential thermal runaway conditions. Do we, we don't have the same problem with the newer technologies, do we, Dan? Do we, 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 what, what are we looking at in the way of monitoring and controls within these new technologies? Well, and what you say is absolutely true for for a safe and effective lithium system you basically have to micromanage the batteries each one each cell in the battery system has to be monitored for voltage overcharge undercharge and temperature you go into these other technologies the nickel zinc the zinc manganese dioxide some of these others and while battery monitoring is and can be very beneficial the need to micromanage the battery is not there. The, the monitoring realistically on these batteries is more in line with just informationally, you might want to know this, but it's not, oh my God, turn the thing off because something's going on. That's not the type of monitoring or management we have to have. Our own specific battery, we use a charge controller to, to make sure that we don't overcharge the battery and we monitor it for temperature and overall string and individual monoblock voltage. But as far as any other controls per se, we don't have any. I mean, literally the UPS is in charge and our battery is primarily designed for UPS applications, but the UPS is in charge of when to turn it off, 
We don't give a command to turn the battery off from the management system, unlike a lithium battery would have to. The only thing we do is prevent overcharge on the battery, and it's not because we're worried about the safety of the battery or any thermal runaway or anything like that. It's literally just to extend the life of the battery and give the customer the optimum life cycle out of it. Isn't it true, though, that the battery of you would prefer not to be in a fully charged state to get maximum life out of it? And, and that's, that's pretty much true of any of them. Lithium more in particular than anything else. They, they say if you want a lithium battery to, to live its optimum life, you should never charge it more than 80%. Of course, that severely erodes its ability to support a load for a long period of time or for an adequate period of time, I should say. But with ours, and I believe the zinc manganese dioxide, if you keep them somewhere in the 95% range, you're virtually in ideal territory. You don't want to overcharge the batteries because you can do chemical damage to the battery, which will shorten the life. One of the things we haven't covered so far, and I'm not, I'm only going to mention it, we're not going to go into it, but that's alternative te technologies such as fuel cells and a lot of money going into looking at hydrogen at the moment. I don't know if it's ever going to become economically viable. I don't mean the fuel cells themselves, but the method of refueling them. So maybe that's for, that's for another podcast, but I, I do want to remind the listeners, that what we're talking about here is stationary batteries and the stationary batteries and the application of them. So don't get an idea we're talking about electric vehicles or things like that. I, I don't want to talk about them anyway. But so I think, David, how are we doing for time? He's giving me a signal. I don't know where. Oh, he's saying we've got five or 10 minutes. So going to go back over to George and let him have a say or a rant about something, which I'd, which probably George is not backwards and coming forward. So I always like to like to listen to his opinions. I might not agree with them. I might argue with them, but I do value his opinions. So George, have you anything else to say? Well, I will have my 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 one, and I'll not call it a rant in this case. But the one thing that does concern me is that we, as we try to implement all these new technologies and put them into place, put them into service, we are currently lacking a lot of the engineering knowledge that's required to build that type of system or to understand what it takes to build that system. When I first started in this industry more years ago than I care to remember, as Alan well knows, that you put together a system from a whole series of components that matched exactly what the customer required. As we got into the, uh, the cellular industry, that's how it was to start with. And then in the latter stages, and I know I, I admit that at one point I was involved in the design of a, of a totally integrated unit for a customer, because it seemed to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. The idea of putting everything into one box with modern switch mode rectifiers, nice small ones. You could put it all in there and you could just simply bolt it into the rack. The problem is that because of the volumes required, almost all that manufacturing was then moved offshore. People didn't build them in this country. And we're now at the situation is that all that knowledge and expertise of what it takes to put together a system that can be economical, easy to work on from a service point of view, isn't there. We, we, we're missing it. And I've, it's not just my thoughts. I've heard this from a number of people talking about it, that trying to buy, trying to buy a lithium system for a separate, for a specific purpose. One particular gentleman's comment to me was, he said, the company that they were buying it from were buying the, the actual cells from China, and they were a reputable cell. He had no problem with that. They were using a third-party controller because they, they, the battery, 
the cell manufacturer didn't have their own controller, so they were buying a third-party controller from China, and then they were using a local company to integrate these into containers. And he said, it's just not working because they don't even know how to work together to put the system together properly because there's nobody standing there overseeing it that knows exactly how this type of thing works. And you, you, I know that you, Dan, have been in, you know, getting your package into cabinets so that they could be sold into the, uh, the actual data center industry. Does that sound familiar? It does. It does. It, it's interesting. You were talking about manufacturing batteries in China versus the U.S. I read a statistic the other day that said that all of the U.S. lithium battery manufacturer combined right now is about I think it said 7% of the global lithium manufacturer. So that shows you how far how far things have gone in the direction of offshoring all of the manufacture. We do, in fact, manufacture our own cells. So we have control over the cell, the quality of the cell. We import the batteries. Ours are made offshore as well, but we're trying to institute a U.S. manufacturing plant by the end of this year. But we are also in that situation where we have tried to create our own controller. And just because of, as you said, the engineering resources, we've had to outsource the control. We have a very good reputable manufacturer that we have. They have basically taken a controller that they already manufactured and tailored it to our specific need. And we integrate that into a cabinet. We have our own manufacturing, contact, contract manufacturing to build the cabinets. And they take our, our batteries, our controller, and install them in the cabinet. And we're able to ship them in volume um, to, to UPS users, data centers, and other, other pardon me, power type battery end users. So... I'm very familiar with exactly what you're talking about, George. I worked with a company in the past that we manufactured a battery management system. I know that you have past history with battery monitoring company, and we are both familiar with how much it takes to manufacture a quality battery management or monitoring system. But when you when you take basically cells that you're buying from a manufacturer, you're not in control of the manufacturer. You're just buying them on the market. And then you're buying your controller from another company that doesn't have a relationship with the with the cell manufacturer. You're already introducing a series of compromises there that aren't necessarily good. And then when you have to build a system out of those components into something that's commercially viable, and you have generally contract manufacturing doing the assembly and such as that with, with those systems, you've introduced several layers of, of potential miscommunication. Let's just put it that way. And that miscommunication can be a real problem for the end user. I'd just like to comment, that Dan, you, you reminded me of something, or George, you did, that there's a, IEEE has a PAR, which is a, a provisional authorization request on it's the numbers 3189 and the title of it is recommended practice for the design and construction of prefabricated and modular outdoor batteries enclosures so maybe that's a step in the right direction and the you know just a disclaimer here before i forget you know you don't have to have a goatee beard to be a a battery experts so but we i i don't consider myself an expert by by any means but been there done that the good the bad and the ugly so we'll probably come to a conclusion pretty quickly we're, we're all going to be at batcon and I'd love to talk to any of our listeners constructive criticism or you know we sometimes we'd like to get good comments i know david you can probably round off or probably give some statistics there as to our listeners, but it kind of, the number kind of surprised me. And I was also surprised that 
you know, I didn't get any phone calls from my colleagues, you know, saying I was wrong about that or what are you talking about? Which kind of reminds me of going back to, I believe it was 1991. George and I were at a, we give a paper, made a presentation at a Pixie conference. Telephone people will know what Pixie is. It's a building industries consulting service international. But the title of the paper was batteries are supposed to keep you up, but they're going to let you down. And, you know, I said to George, you know, we're going to hear about this paper. Was it really at that time the VRLAs were failing? Some problems with VLA batteries, but surprisingly, and all the manufacturers were at this conference. But surprisingly, what surprised me, I don't surprise George or not, is we didn't get one negative comment. Well, and we did. We did? Yes, if you if you remember right, as part of our strange sense of humour, you started the paper off, and then you got to the part and you said, oh, this is the boring part. George, you do this part. And you went walkabout down on the floor while I did that part. And then when you decided it was time to come back, you threw a battery at me and climbed back on the stage again and took the rest of the paper over. And in the comments from the audience on the you know the review of the conference, one of them was he said it was going to be boring and it was. <laughs> it was only a double A battery I threw at you, George. But <laughs> but what what I, what I was getting at was the manufacturers were there and a lot of users were there and not one of them argued with what we we said, and oh. we became known as the basically the whistleblowers of the you know the stationary battery industry as it was at the time when we only had about three different chemistries to worry about. But anyway, we're going to be at BatCon. Love to talk to you. Ask us any questions. I like to say, if we don't know the answer, we know somebody that does. So, yep. so Dan, yep. thank you for participating. And George, Let me interject I know one thing real quick, Alan. I'm going to propose that if anyone is able to come to BatCon and attend the exhibit, I know that you and George will be circulating somewhere around the Eagle Eye University booth, and I will come over and join you for a little while so that maybe we can have some people come and talk with us at the booth. Okay, well, that'd be great. Just make sure you bring some drink tickets with you, Dan. <laughs> I think I can do that. Okay. Okay. So, Georgia, I'll let you have the last word. Oh, the last word is that I find it interesting that theoretically I did a paper at the first BATCOM ever. I did it with you. Unfortunately, I didn't actually get to go to BATCOM because for some reason we got a job and I lost the coin toss. Or the coin toss, I should say. I ended up going to Fort Worth to change out a 1200 amp DC power system live and you went to BATCON. The rest is history, isn't it? It's ironic that I was looking at, or you reminded me, George, I was looking at the, the some of the speakers there and some of them, few of them, not many, were at the first, made a presentation at the first BATCON. So, so... Two of us are on the, the, one of the panels on the last day. Well, one of the, we're both speakers on the last day. Yeah. I, I, I keep telling people that that's an indication to both of us that it's time for us to move on. You okay. know? <laughs> so I so, uh, just want to remind people that even if you can't go to BatCon, that sometime after BatCon is over and gone, on the BatCon website, we, we publish or the organizers publish all of the papers that have been presented. So, you know, we talked about, you know, codes is a numbers game. You know, I, I can't keep, I can't keep pace with all the numbers. You know, I'm a simplistic guy, but uh, you know, you can find a lot of information if you go into the BATCOM website. Yeah. Sometime, I don't know when, but it'll be after it. So thanks, Dan. We'll see you at, uh, at, BATCOM. The, 25th, at the 25th BATCON nonetheless. Yes. 25th, yes. I've only missed one, and that was through COVID. So yeah. anyway, and uh, George has been a stalwart as, with BatCon as well. And uh, yeah, 
that, that's where we learn stuff. BatCon is where we learn stuff. Every BatCon I say, oh, I didn't know that. Absolutely. Well, you've, been, you've been around for 40 odd years in the industry. Yes, but I didn't know that. Okay. Well, George, sorry, I, th I said I'd give you the last word, but I guess that's, that's okay. a wrap. Okay was his last word. Okay. okay. There we go. We heard it. We heard it. Well, thanks again, guys. Really appreciate it. Great topic. And look forward to seeing everyone there live at BatCon next week. Thanks a lot. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.